Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. This week, we're honoring the life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who died on December 26th at the age of 90. Tutu dedicated his life to fighting for basic civil and human rights for all. Born a teacher's son in South Africa, he followed his father's path and taught for several years before studying theology. From there, he became the first Black General Secretary of the South African Council of Churches, and then the Archbishop of Cape Town. In 1997, Nelson Mandela named him chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the abolition of apartheid. Archbishop Tutu's daughter, Mupo Tutu, is an Episcopalian priest. The two co-wrote the book Made for Goodness and Why This Makes All the Difference. On March 17, 2010, the two talked about that and more with Roy Eisenhardt. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco. Join us now for a conversation with the late Desmond Tutu and his daughter, Mupo Tutu. That was quite a welcome. Uh, my sense is that people were not just putting their hands together to be polite. They were saying to you, thank you. And not just thank you for what both of you have done, but thank you for the inspiration that you are to all of us to try to bring some optimism and hope into the world that we all share. So. I would um, love to talk a bit about your new book. Made for Goodness, written by both of you. What was it like to try to work together? <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so very much, Roy. And thank you for your very warm welcome. One of the wonderful things about having a complexion like mine is that you don't notice when I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first of many jokes that we're going to hear. <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was wonderful. Uh, Poe is quite right. And it, it, I mean, it's difficult to, to believe that she is grown. You know, uh, it's, I think most, most parents still think of uh, the, their kids as kids. And we call her uh, our baby. Leah and I call her our baby. And, mm -hmm. and one of her daughters got very upset and said, uh, why, why don't Kulu, Kulu and Gogo get their own child and can call her baby. <laughs> you are mommy. But yes, I, I, I think Leah and I just want to give thanks to God uh, for the different gifts that God has given to our children. And uh, sometimes, yeah, uh, there are difficult things I'm quite amazed. I, I, I mean, I really am when I, when I read some of the things that Paul writes and, and, and give great thanks to God uh, for her. 
but also giving great thanks to the many people who have contributed to making her who she is. Uh, because ultimately, all of us. Uh, I mean, there's a, there was a there was a wonderful bishop in Lesotho who who used to say, "Just look at that man. He he's a self-made man who worships his maker." That uh, <laughs> 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 in 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 essence. None of us can ever claim to be self-made. We are, we are influenced by so many. Sometimes we don't know that they influence us. And yeah, it was lovely. That's that's <laughs> good. Um, and there's a concept in the book that I would. There's not a an English word for it, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce it for you, but. It's a concept I would like both of you to address because it's so important. Ubuntu. How close did I come? Beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in our languages and in South African languages and culture, we say that a person is a person through other people. Um, that we... Um, we're never defined as an individual. We're defined by our relationships. Um, and in fact, even in, um, you know, as, as we name each other, um, that, that you are named um, the mother of your child or the father of your child or the, um, or the, the spouse of your spouse. Um, that that what is the the essential descriptor is the relationship, mm-hmm. um, and so the uh, the Western way of describing it is that no man is an island, no person is an island, mm-hmm. um, and in in the African conception, um, no person is an island. Mm-hmm. And why that is so important? Uh, well, actually, I mean, it is something that is very deeply biblical. Yeah. Because uh, you, you remember that lovely story right at the beginning of the Bible. Adam, Adam has the time of his life with the animals. It's great fun. I mean, and he's, he's gambling with the animals and... Uh, there's fruit in abundance and when he works it's not a drudgery but God then looks on and says "Mm -mm -mm." it's not it's not it's not good for this guy to be alone Mm -hmm. and uh, I I like telling it this way Uh, God says to Adam, uh, Adam, and Adam says, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> I think, says God, I will, I want to give you a partner. Can you choose one from the animals? And I'm going to make the animals walk in procession past you. Uh, and, and Adam says, uh-huh, uh, and, 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 and the animals come and God says, what about this one? And Adam says, nope. What about this one? Not one in your life. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and then um, God puts Adam to sleep as the story goes and produces this delectable creature, uh, Eve. And, and Adam awakes. And when he sees Eve, he says, wow, <laughs> this is what the doctor ordered. <laughs> but I mean, the point, the point that that makes so charmingly is something that most of us would know and psychology tells us. If there were no other human beings, 
I wouldn't know how to walk as a human being. I wouldn't know how to speak as a human being. I wouldn't know how to think as a human being, except through learning from other human beings. I can't be human in isolation. And, and that story speaks of the fact that we, we are made for this delicate network of interdependence. It's a, it's a lovely story because it, it speaks about how Adam and, and Eve uh, can't find completion just in himself or herself. And, and, and you're made not to be self-sufficient. The totally self-sufficient actually ends up being subhuman. Mm. You know, and so Ubuntu, Ubuntu speaks to this and says, yes, as Paul has put it, I am because you are. If there were no you, I couldn't be me. And yeah, it is a delicate network, and uh, I end up being very obsessive, um, telling the same jokes. I mean, if you go to the next. A meeting which I address, you are going to, oh, he, he did say, he, he told that joke. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I have to salute my wife, who has heard the, the, same, the same stories for about 50 years. And, and often she's the one who leads uh, the laughter um, yeah. Just in case people miss the point, <laughs> but sometimes she does actually say, "You missed the punchline." <laughs> <laughs> but but it is it is actually an incredible thing when you realize that you don't have to be everything. You know, you don't have to be everything. That you 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 can be you and, and not feel threatened by the competence of the other. Because that one, even when they are the most brilliant star in the firmament, can't make it on their own. Not even the most powerful country is able to exist on its own. You need to, to have trade with others. See, I mean, God tries to find so many ways of saying, do you know what? You are actually members of one family. It's the lesson that God has been trying to teach us from the year dot. And, and we find it so difficult to learn. Why do we spend so much money on arms when we know that a tiny fraction would ensure that children everywhere had clean water to drink, had enough food to eat, could, and you can go on and on. But I mean, why is it so difficult to get it into a number? One of the reasons that I was so taken with that concept is because we seem as a society and as a global population 
to be so afraid of difference. Somebody is different than me, and therefore they are to be subordinated or punished or otherwise I have to make myself better. And why is it that on one hand we have this wonderful concept of Ubuntu, yet we seem so afraid as a world of differences? <laughs> I, I defer to you. To my superior wisdom. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I, I think there, there, there are two pieces to that. One is that um, there was a time in human, in human history when it was sensible to be suspicious of difference. Um, if, if a person was different from you, was from outside your group, um, the chances were that they were going to be hostile and were not going to have your best interests at heart and you wouldn't have a, ch- a second chance to find out whether or not this, <laughs> this was indeed the case. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's, that is not the truth right. about human existence now. Right. Um, that we don't, we no longer have that need for fear and suspicion of difference. Um, there is space enough to accommodate our difference. But what we don't know is all, always provokes fear in us. Mm. That's beautiful, yes. Mm. Uh, I think, I mean, that there are times when we recognize that it is actually important to be different. In an orchestra, mm-hmm. you have an oboe, you have a violin, you have a clarinet, you have, and you even have someone who stands at the back of the orchestra and solemnly, I mean, after the orchestra, they point at that guy at the back. And quite solemnly, (laughs) you know, um, that diversity is, in fact, the law of life. St. Paul, in, 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 in the New Testament, uses the image of the body. The body is a body precisely because it has got different organs. It wouldn't be a body. It would not be able to to operate if it was all I. You know, I mean, how would you speak? I mean, we wish sometimes that for some people it could be that. But, I mean, (laughs) I'm not referring to me. But you see, and even in one family, you aren't identical, except if you maybe are twins. You're different. Uh, Tall, some of you tall, some not so tall, maybe all of you, yes, maybe handsome, but handsome in different ways, And, and it's... It's fascinating. I mean, just looking at siblings who come from one pair, just how incredibly diverse they are. I mean, you have you have a child who is very thoughtful and 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 quiet. You have one who is rambustious and 
but they they are in one family, and and we keep trying to make the mistake of thinking. I mean that the best kind of place is where you are always unanimous. That not, that is not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, you are unanimous perhaps because one of you is overbearing, you know. But where you have the, the the excitement, the exhilaration of different points of view, there is an enrichment. Um, and, and you you you, you know. It's almost always in, in, in times of crisis when people are allergic to difference. Right. You know, when they want straightforward answers. Mm-hmm. President Reagan was very smart. Uh, in that regard, uh, <laughs> but he, he knew that most people would tend to want unambiguous answers. So there is the evil empire mm-hmm. and the goodies, mm-hmm. and we are the goodies and they are the baddies. No subtle. You know, and you see then how fundamentalism grows. You, the worst example of that kind of trying to iron out all the differences is in ethnic cleansing. You don't, you don't then like people who speak differently to you. You don't like people who think differently, and and you you imagine. Life has just unambiguous, straight answers, and you don't accept that. In very many instances, you have to say, on the one hand, and on the other, mm-hmm. and people say he doesn't know or she doesn't know where they are going, uh, and you don't like, especially politicians, I think. But you do it in in so many other areas of life, mm-hmm. and, and and God says, I mean, isn't it wonderful when you look at the at the story of creation? Why the heck did God have to create so many different species of mm-hmm. tree? <laughs> I mean, you said, let there be trees, and it just explodes. Yeah. Let there be people. You know, yes, of course, we, the, it says we start off with, but I mean, fish, animals, a glorious kaleidoscope. Uh, and that's why, I mean, we said, it's not very original, but I mean, when we spoke about South Africa and, and its different peoples and, and urging people to celebrate our diversity, we said, the rainbow people, mm-hmm. because the rainbow is a rainbow precisely because it has different colors. Mm-hmm. Both of you experienced one of the worst examples of difference-based uh, prejudice under apartheid that the world has seen. How did a system like that, was it able to get a a handhold and to grow into the strength and the power. I'll call it evil. How did that evil get a grip on your nation? Gradually. I mean, it wasn't uh, the the laws that codified apartheid um, were instituted over several years. But the um, the land grabs that opened the door for apartheid to be put in place um, were instituted over centuries, mm-hmm. um, and so 
it's it's a gradual taking um, from one population and putting into the hands of another population. Um, and it only requires um, the acquiescence of those who have power um, and refuse to see the effects of their use of power um, and the subjugation of those who do not have power. Yes, I think, I mean, that, that explains a, a very great deal. Um, but, you know, we also ought to keep saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Because, you know, the perpetrators of much of the world's evil are not people who walk around and have horns on their heads and you look at them and you see, no, they are sitting very uncomfortably because they are sitting on their tails. Uh, they, they, they are people like us. You know, I mean, the, the people who supported Hitler, many of them were, in fact, I mean, they were called German Christians, but people who went to church. Mm -hmm. Similarly with apartheid, it, it was people who said they found justification for apartheid in the Bible. Uh, and, and, and so you, in a, in a way, ought not to be too hoity-toity, you know, uh, because, I mean, when you say, why could people who read the, the same Bible uh, manage to support slavery? I mean, it was universal. I mean, uh, some, some, some of our best hymns are written by people who were slave owners who didn't see that there was anything wrong with it. And it's, it's to say, if one had been exposed to the same pressures as those people, would I, mm -hmm. would I have turned out like them? It is to say that, in, 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 in a way, yes, we are made for goodness, but the environment often tends to be hostile. Mm -hmm. Hostile, again, because of an incredible thing. You know, I mean, we, we too frequently do not understand, I think, the incredible wonder of an omnipotent God, of an all-knowing God, of an all-loving God who could, who could actually let things such as holocausts, as genocides, as slavery happen, until you realize, I mean, that, you know, God says, I give you a, a real autonomy mm -hmm. as a person. I give you the freedom that makes you a person, the freedom to choose. And you and I have had many moments when we say, but God, why didn't you intervene when such an awful thing was going to happen? And God says, well, do you know what that actually means? It would mean that each time when you were making a decision, and you're going to make a wrong decision, I step in, I intervene, that nullifies your freedom. Mm. And so God becomes like so many of us who are parents, yeah. where, you know, you sit and you see <laughs> this guy is going to make a decision is going to rule. But it is his decision. I've done everything I could to help him, to nurture him. I think some of you as parents will, 
will have known the experience where maybe you sit and you, I mean, when you see a brilliant sun succumbing to alcohol or drugs, and, and, and those of us who have the, the grace, the blessing to make the right decisions can only keep saying thank you for letting us be able to choose right. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. I think the key word that you said, gradually, is such an important takeaway lesson from this book, is that systems such as apartheid or discrimination against people based on sexual preference, race, color, you, you name it, happens gradually. So we're taken along by small steps. And it's very hard to stand up every time you see a small step. Right? That's why all of us applauded you when you walked out. Because you helped the world recognize that these small steps had turned into a system that had to be undone. Now, whether it was you or whether it was God or both, it became undone. And I think we'd love to hear about that process of the end of apartheid. Yes, I mean, it's a a wonderful cue for saying, you know, yes, there is evil, but there's also a great deal of good. I used to come to this uh, country at a time when a very popular president was opposed to sanctions. Mm-hmm. He vetoed it. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, he vetoed. I mean, uh, and, and I, I came, sometimes I came at a time when students ought to have been concerned about grades and, you know, run about April and so. It was one of the most fantastic, heartwarming experiences. I remember, I think I, I, I went to Berkeley. It could have been on, at any other campus, but I happened to have gone to Berkeley. In the baking sunshine, students were sitting in the quad, protesting to try and urge their institution to divest, Mm -hmm. concerned about a people who were more than 10,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. And it happened in in such a way, it wasn't just students, it was very many older people involved in the anti-apartheid movement. What they accomplished was a change in the moral climate of the country so that your, your Congress was able to pass the anti-apartheid legislation with a presidential veto override. Mm-hmm. And why I was saying it's a wonderful cue, it is to say that we would never, we would never have made it on our own. That God actually does have wonderful collaborators. Uh, And and we owe you, we owe you and all of the people who preceded you an enormous debt of gratitude for what you did in supporting us. We are free today because of you. Uh, oh. Now, I thought that would have been a cue for real applause. I mean... <laughs> no, no. I've got, to, I've got to tell you, you, you would allow me to do this, won't you? Absolutely. <laughs> You're a very trusting man. <laughs> Uh, 
I I usually say I have a a magic wand. Only the wise can see it. Here I've got it in my hand, and it has it really has incredible powers. I wave it over you, and you know what it is done to you now. It's turned you into instant South Africans. <laughs> and so I say, fellow South Africans, let's give these Americans a real yeah. humdinger. Eh? Come on. <laughs> but that, I mean, yes, it, it seems like play, but it is for real that the powers of, e- of evil are subverted, overcome, by the powers of good. Right. And, and that is why, I mean, we, we underscore that in the end, goodness and justice and love and compassion will prevail over their counterparts. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the texture of the universe. But often when goodness prevails over evil, for example, over Germany, uh, we seek retributive justice. And in South Africa, and we are now all citizens of South Africa, uh, you instead look for a system of restorative justice, what I think most of us call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You want me to take the first shot? Yes. Okay. Um, not only because you know South Africans are a particularly wonderful um, nation of people, but also um, because of the reality of how we got to the end of apartheid, mm-hmm. um, that we didn't have a war that was with winners and losers. Um, as as we did um, with Germany and the Nuremberg trials. Um, and so neither side had won an outright victory. And so the choice was made that since we've had to negotiate our way into a post-apartheid future, we also have to negotiate the kind of um, post-apartheid future that we want. And um, the, the parties decided that on, on the one side, there, there was an interest in hearing the story told, but a recognition that we, that we couldn't compel the story to be told in a, mm-hmm. with, with the threat of retribution. And so... We needed this. The, we wanted the story told, and the offer was made of an op, uh, the option for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a grace. Um, we got there not only be, by our brilliance, but by grace. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 reality on the ground meant that 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 solution was the solution that we needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the gift of the truth and reconciliation process has been a South Africa that we can all claim as home, um, has been getting to hear the truth of what happened to our loved ones who died, who were imprisoned, who disappeared, um, getting to reclaim stories that never that were never finished. Mm-hmm. We we were we were very fortunate, in a way, uh, that we were not the pioneers that some people think we we were with regard to the a truth and reconciliation process. Uh, there, there there had been other countries, Chile. Uh, Argentina and so on that had uh, been there before us and we learned from their successes and from their failures 
the, the chief difference um, that we maybe, there were two things that were new. The one was the granting of amnesty. Mm -hmm. no, no commission up to that point had had that power. And, and second, that amnesty applications were heard publicly. Mm -hmm. And third, that the commission had teeth. The, uh, and third, that the commission has teeth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. But the main point that you, 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 you make is, again, something based very much on Ubuntu. In, in, in the concept of Ubuntu, you raise as of critical importance harmony in the community. You want to live in harmony. And so uh, an offense is not just something that you want to punish. An offense has caused a a rift in relationship. And so you concentrate on the relationship restoration, the healing of the rift. Um, and, and you pay attention to both the victim and the perpetrator, whereas in, in the uh, retributive justice system, your, your main aim is to punish. Right. And in fact, you, you pay very scant attention to the victim. I mean, the victim may come in as a, as, as a, uh, a, a witness, uh, but from that moment on, there is very scant attention paid to them. But can I also just say that although it happened in South Africa and many of those who, who came forward and demonstrated this amazing magnanimity, the generosity of spirit, it, it is not a peculiarly South African Black South African attribute. We, some of you may have heard about Amy Peel, mm -hmm. who had been at Stanford and was a Fulbright scholar, and and she, she was murdered brutally, uh, having given a lift to a black colleague to take her to a black uh, township home. Um, her parents, uh, her father since died, but her parents at the time came to South Africa uh, when the perpetrators of that gruesome murder were applying for amnesty. And I mean, in an incredible uh, outpouring of a love and a, a generosity, um, Peter and um, his wife, Linda. Linda thank you, dearie. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm at that stage when I need you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> supported, yeah. supported the granting of amnesty, but not that. That's now fantastic, mm -hmm. <laughs> but. Do you know, they then set up the Amy Bean Foundation, mm -hmm. which employed some of the, the guys who had murdered their daughter mm -hmm. um, as, 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 a, as a project to salvage m many of these kids from the poverty and the deprivation of the townships. It's, Human beings 
really, I mean, human beings are amazing. Uh, and we had so, so many examples of just how wonderful uh, human beings can be. It strikes me as such a, a powerful lesson that if we can seek to avoid the immediate temptation to want revenge and punishment and go to this process that you're talking about. And it makes me think about our own country because although we have all South African citizens out there, I wasn't under the magic wand. So (laughs) I am thinking about the United States Constitution, which for practical reasons, but nonetheless embedded slavery, denied women the right to vote. And our national policy was to divest Native Americans of their land, again, gradually, not quickly, but gradually. I'm wondering whether our country would be better off if we had a reconciliation. Yeah, uh, I think many people get uh, bogged down in the question of reparation. But I, I, I remember when President uh, Clinton, in the last years of his uh, administration, visited uh, South Africa, and I, I said to him, I think that there is a great deal to be said for the United States going through a kind of TRC process, truth and reconciliation process, because there are many stories that people want to tell. Can I uh, just backtrack a bit? and say, when I came to this country for the first time in in 1972, initially I was very surprised at the bitterness in African-American hearts. And I said, I couldn't understand this. I mean, these people... I mean, have this constitution and and so forth and so on. Um, and but then I realized, I mean, that uh, yeah, it's one thing to have uh, things enshrined in a constitution; it's another uh, to have 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 them be actuated. Uh, and uh, and thinking, yes, I, I mean, there is almost a this ceiling. You can become anything, and you have. I mean, you you're actually one of the craziest countries in the world. <laughs> I mean, you know, you you have on the one side a Kyushu's clan, and there you are. You go and get, I mean, look at look at what we've got in the White House now. No, no, I should put it differently. If you put that into the press, people are going to, uh, I mean, imagine headlines. Tutu says, "Just look at what we've got in the White House." <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it, it is amazing. Mm-hmm. You really are amazing. I mean, when you you know that you you've read just recently that somebody is dragged behind a, a truck because he's black and he's dragged to his death, and then and then you say we're going to put mm-hmm. a, a black person in 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 the White House, and so you're fantastic. But <laughs> oh, you're fantastic. Full stop. Uh, <laughs> and. and Yes, all right. And, and, 
what I'm trying to say is there is a level of anguish that lies in the pit of almost all African Americans, which has not really been articulated. And until people are given the opportunity in a safe space to get all the pile out of their system. And I mean, there, there are many other people. There will be white people too uh, who have things that they want to get out and, and, and be allowed to say almost anything you want to say in this space. You know, you don't realize how healing, how therapeutic telling your story can be. I didn't believe, I mean, I didn't know how that can happen. But let me just tell you this short little story. A, little, a young man came to the commission who had been blinded by police, police action in his uh, ghetto township. Uh, and he came to tell, our, tell his story. When he had finished, one of the panels asked him, how do you feel now that you have told your story? And a broad smile broke over his face. You're still blind. But he said, you have given me back my eyes. Uh, I, I just hope that one day you may have yes, courage, you may have the grace, all of you to say, let us find a way in which Native Americans, uh, Hispanics, African Americans, Caucasians, all just say, let's, let's get the, this pile out of our system. Let's, let's lance the boil. And, and get the stuff out. You, you are a fantastic country and you would be, you would be an even more fantastic. You asked me how long um, I was going to torture you tonight <laughs> and my part of it is over. Uh, we now have the wonderful opportunity to bring up the lights and have about uh, 20 minutes or so of questions from the audience. Um, You've been a wonderful torturer. That's right. This <laughs> goes to the... This is restorative torture. Good evening. Um, on St. Patrick's Day, I wanted to mention that uh, Beckett said in a poem that uh, love is man unfinished. And it allows me to ask you a question. In a country where gays and lesbians can't marry, if you were trying to tell a story or make a point so that even those that don't believe in the idea that gays and lesbians could marry, what would that story be to change a heart, soften a person so that they could see everyone's need to be loved and love? When I, I, I am preaching... Uh, I I have found that it, it's been one of the most wonderful things to tell the story of how you you know uh, in 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 the fourth gospel in John's gospel uh, Jesus speaks about his coming. Uh, Crucifixion, I mean, it's called uh, exaltation in, in John. When he is lifted up, when he's lifted up, he will draw all. And wonderful image, because, I mean, he's got his arms thrown out like that, 
as in a cosmic embrace and note he doesn't say I will draw some he says I will draw all 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 rich poor white yellow red black clever not so clever <laughs> beautiful not so beautiful all all imagine 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 all gay lesbian so called straight all all in this embrace comes from the balcony. I was wondering if you would briefly reminisce about the role of Nelson Mandela in the ending of apartheid. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) He is everything that you have been told and more. I mean, we would not, I said we would not have made it without your help. But having got your help, without him, we wouldn't have got where we did. Forget it. And one of the things is, you know, frequently people say, 27 years, what a waste. I mean, imagine what this guy could have done if 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 he had got out of prison earlier. Baloney. The 27 years were critical in that Nelson Mandela went to jail angry. And he was the commander-in-chief of the armed wing of the ANC. Angry at the travesty of justice that he and his comrades had received in the Rivonia trial. The 27 years, crucial. It was, it was the crucible that got rid of the dross. Sitting there, he began to understand the other's point of view. And the 27 years, you see, I mean, if he he came along and he said, well, guys, we shouldn't be looking for revenge. We should uh, be looking to reconciliation. And somebody says to him, you are just being glib. You know nothing about suffering. 27 years, he just has to say, and that shuts you up pretty efficiently. Uh, it gave him a credibility and an authority that very few things give. I mean, suffering does actually... Uh, suffering, you know, obviously, I mean, suffering can, can embitter a person, but suffering uh, can ennoble most of the people who have made... Uh, an impact on the world, certainly in changing systems, are people who would have undergone some sort of suffering. And so we were blessed. We were blessed that he should have been at the helm of our ship of state. So when he says, no, not retribution, forgiveness, he speaks as one who has forgiven as much as is forgiven. And, and, and you know, he, he also, he, he's, he's a lousy speaker. I mean, uh, you, you sit and, I mean, his, his speeches would be awful if it wasn't he. 
I think, I mean, that people do, are, are not really listening to what he's saying. <laughs> they mainly, yes, I, I mean, it is he. Our next question comes from the back rear of the orchestra. Well, um, I just wanted to ask, how is it possible to find hope in a place where it's hopeless? By grace, um, by looking at the people who surround us, by looking at, um, there, is, there are signs of hope everywhere if we know how to look. If we train our eyes to look for hope, we will find it. Um, and it's, it, it, it really is a training. Um, if, if a Nelson Mandela who's endured 27 years in jail can emerge from that as a person who is unembittered, it means that in that hopeless place, in a place where there is torture, in a place where there is pain, in a place where there is deprivation, he was able to identify that hope that, to hold on to. But it's also being given, I think, I mean, one is given the opportunity, we've been given the opportunity, well, especially I think I haven't been given the opportunity of going to really rough places uh, that seemed devoid of hope. I've, I've visited uh, some poor countries and it's fantastic, I mean, to get there and you see young people who come from rich countries, Peace Corps types, building classrooms, clinics, teaching, totally unsung heroes. I mean, recently being in Darfur, well, when recently, it's about two years ago, um, and I have to tell you that the, the, the descriptions of the four that you may have fall very far short of the ghastly reality there. Um, and we go, and one of the first things that struck us very, very strongly were the men, Muslim, in white uh, robes, spotless, spotless, spotless. I mean, you see, in this squalor and filth, and where water is scarce, how do they manage to be talked out as they are, but you see, you realize, I mean, that there is, there is, a, there is a resilience in the human spirit. There is something about us that does refuse to go under. I tell a story and people laugh. And therefore, they laugh. And even more, I think we don't salute sufficiently the aid workers, almost all of whom would come from well-to-do homes, very safe places. They go there deliberately. They choose to go to a place where they are vulnerable. Women know that they are likely to be abducted and abducted, they're going to be raped. Where they go, totally unsung. We, we hardly ever celebrate them. You see, I mean, there must be something about us human beings, about situations that can't be downed. It's, it's fantastic to be human. It's, it's just wonderful, I mean, to know that at our best, we are that kind of creature.
I think the message that you both just gave us is a perfect point for us to adjourn the evening. And all of us, I think, have a lot to think about and to be thankful to you for. Thank you. You remind me to buy the book. Yeah. You've been listening to an archival recording of the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu and his daughter, Mopo Tutu. This program was recorded on March 17, 2010. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein-Breyer and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Jordan White assists with production and communications. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theatre technical director, Stephen Eckerd. The recording engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sydney Goldstein. City Arts and Lectures programs are supported by Grants for the Arts of the San Francisco Hotel Tax Fund. Additional funding provided by the Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and the Friends of City Arts and Lectures. Support for recording and post-production of City Arts and Lectures is provided by Robert Mailer Anderson and Nicola Miner. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net. <laughs>